When you work at the highest levels of executive leadership, you learn a little bit about breaking glass ceilings. And Tina Chen would know that better than most. She was the Chief of Staff to Michelle Obama when she was First Lady. She was Senior Advisor to Barack Obama when he was President. And now she's one of the founders of the Time's Up Legal Defence Fund, which connects survivors of workplace sexual harassment with the legal and public relations assistance that they need but might not be able to afford. So what does she think about how women in power can affect social change? She and I had a great conversation at All About Women 2019, which went from her experiences coming up as a female lawyer in a room full of suits, to her time at the White House, to her thoughts on women's leadership. Oh, well, thank you, Edwina, and thank you all for being here um, and for having me in this incredible place. I mean, you know, everyone around the world knows the Sydney Opera House, so the idea that I'm sort of standing under one of these sails right now is pretty, is pretty remarkable. Um, and I did come from uh, a place where it was negative 12 degrees when I left Chicago a couple of days ago, so the warmth, the warmth is terrific. So, you know, this was the title of this is about being the boss, right? But the thing about being the boss is that you're not always been the boss. Um, so I, was, I, I thought I might take a little bit on my personal story and journey to, to go through this. And the first really starts with my parents, you know, and I always want to remember my parents. Uh, this, this, this is Peter and Lily Chen, who, you know, emigrated from China in 1949 um, to the United States in their 20s. And it often surprises me when I think about them as a 20-something young couple. Recently, my dad, a recent medical school grad, my mom, you know, a recent college grad coming all by themselves in the midst of a war to the United States. You know, it was a very different time in the United States, but it was also a very different time in China. I forgot. This is, my, this is a picture of my grandfather right in the center. And my parents were product of old China. This is the China that they grew up in. So not only was it halfway around the world and a different language, it was an entirely different culture from what my parents were raised in and the, what, and the sort of you know, Midwest suburban childhood that I had. But it was a really different time in the United States. And I show this picture. This is an article from the newspaper in Cleveland, Ohio, where my parents had settled, um, on the day that my mother was naturalized as a US citizen. And in a very different time, having come to the United States as a refugee, she was celebrated as becoming a US citizen. A little bit different than what is happening now. Um, but I talk about this a lot because it's a reminder to me as an American of really what the core value is of the United States and what we really are about and how we have built our country. And it's also important for me to acknowledge that really only in my country, I think, could have the daughter of these refugees who came over with just two suitcases that could carry. In one generation, their daughter went back to China on a plane that looked like this, with the United States of America emblazoned on the side, you know, representing the United States of America with the First Lady of the United States. And you know, it's something I feel you know, enormously fortunate you know, and grateful to, to be an American and to be in a place where that can happen in a single generation. I went back to China, also was my, wasn't my first time to return because I went and adopted that little baby that I'm carrying there. Um, well, I'm gonna talk about my kids because I think you know, they, at being the boss is about bringing your entire self to work, which is something I've been fortunate enough to have the resources to do. I adopted Emma from China, and this is my relatives who were still living in China in 1997 when we were there. 
Um, but to go backwards a little bit before the kids, <laughs> my parents, my father actually settled in Cleveland, Ohio, away from the concentrations of Chinese Americans in New York, in San Francisco, because actually he heard about the discrimination in both of those cities and picked a place where there were like no Chinese Americans. <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio, right? You know, there are like five families. We knew them all. Um, uh, but you know, my father, even you know, even though Chinese culture sort of sort of demanded a son, he had two daughters. Uh, but he always imbued that whole ambition he would have put into his son, into my sister and me. So much so, there was a little bit of tiger mom and dad. Yes, they made me go to Harvard. <laughs> it was the only school I could consider going to, which I, you know, I I I, I appreciated. I mean, my activism sort of started early. I forgot when I was looking at this picture to prepare for this. I forgot. Oh yeah, the white armband. I forgot that we did that. That was back, so I graduated in 1978 from Harvard. We were protesting um, uh, and trying to urge Harvard to divest in South Africa. That was what, and that was the, the white armband that a lot of us um, wore in to our, to our graduation. So, you know, activism kind of started early. Um, I wound up right after college going to Springfield, Illinois, capital of Illinois, it's down in the center of the state, um, which, believe it or not, at the time was the hotbed of American feminism. Seriously, it really was. <laughs> you don't know that, but it really was. Uh, because in 1978, we were in the last three years of trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment into the U.S. Constitution, right? Because women are actually not in the U.S. Constitution, other than that 19th Amendment that finally got us the right to vote. But equal rights under the law for women is not expressly stated in our Constitution. It's been read into it by the Supreme Court, and we were trying to get it embodied in there. And Illinois was the only northern industrial state that had not ratified the ERA. It's a lot of where my commitment to gender equality, I learned it, so it's very heady time. I'm 22 years old, and we can see we're marching. <laughs> We've got protests going on. Uh, we were ultimately not successful. Illinois didn't ratify the ERA until last year, 40 years later, a little late. <laughs> Better late than never, I suppose. But it is where I really learned that, and also learned lifelong friends. The woman in the hat is my daughter's godmother. You know, and the woman in the t-shirt there is still one of my dearest friends, because one of the secrets to this work is that's where you make your lifelong friends, too. Um, then very next year, even though we lost the ERA that year, I worked with some of those women pictured there and several others when I was uh, vice president of the Illinois National Organization for Women to actually reform Illinois' criminal sexual assault laws that were among the most antiquated at the time. And I actually think because all the legislators felt really guilty that they hadn't passed the ERA, we actually won that <laughs> and passed that. And we're able, this is the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assaults organization that was really one of the impetus between really making sure that we could address rape and sexual assault and child sexual assault in Illinois in a modern way. From there, I went to law school, became a lawyer, for 23 years practiced at the big international law firm of Skadden Arps, um, loved being a corporate lawyer along the way, but continued to do politics and continue to raise these guys. So this is, you saw the picture of me in China with Emma. This is the moment when my son, um, who is eight years old at the time, met his little sister for the first time when we came off the plane. It's one of my most favorite pictures in the world. Um, this is the two of them, you know, as, you know, a couple of years later. Um, I was a single mom, you know, uh, Patrick's dad and I got divorced when he was an infant. Um, and I adopted Emma on my own as a, as a single mom. Um, and this is, Emma came with me, Patrick was in college by the time we got to the White House. This is another one of my favorite pictures, which is Emma and I um, watching Mrs. Obama do an interview. Um, she's looking a little bored, but she's at least, <laughs> she's at least hugging me. <laughs> 
And now this was last summer. So my son is now a Marine officer, just got married to his wife, Jen, and was about to graduate from college. So my message, I, you know, I sort of recently realized I could now say this, my message to the young parents out there who are working and are worried is it's fine. It's fine. They grow up. They're really wonderful adults. We have a great relationship. <laughs> so it works. It works. It's not always easy, but it works. And then, as Edwina said, I found myself in the White House, right? I used to say to the White House interns, they'd say, so how do you get to the White House? It's like, you know, I really can't tell you how because I just met a guy, big ears, funny-sounding name. He gets elected to the White House. He asks me to come along. I was known in the White House for a very loud laugh. You can sort of perhaps tell that I have a very boisterous laugh. Um, the president used to tease me about it a lot. Here's like, you know, this Mrs. Obama thing, like, we're in, actually in her office, and I have no idea really what's going on here, but she's kind of like, all right, she's really laughing like that. Uh, <laughs> and then we had just wonderful, treasured moments of people that I never thought I could meet. Right? This is the first time Billie Jean King came to meet us. The president was as enthralled as the rest of us were to meet Billie Jean King, the tennis great. This is a moment I treasure, which is, that is Sonia Sotomayor, and this is the morning in which we were walking to announce her as the president's nominee um, to be a woman on the Supreme Court. It was his first Supreme Court nomination, um, and I got a chance to actually work on trying to get her through her confirmation. We're walking right down past the Rose Garden. And then we get to meet somebody like this, who I think you all recognize. <laughs> you know, this is at um, Prince Harry's Invictus Games for military um, veterans um, that we, we, we supported. We're actually in Florida, where she came to visit for those. And then I treasure these because there were moments that are historic. And this is when, at that time, all the living presidents gathered for the opening of the George W. Bush Library. And I will tell you that there was a special relationship that actually developed among us. And even though, you know, I will tell you that I was not a fan of the Bush policies as a, you know, as a Democrat, as we were getting elected, um, there was a warmth and a genuine grace that they afforded us as we came in. So much so that the woman um, next to Mrs. Obama was Mrs. Bush's chief of staff, um, who became a very dear friend of mine because she very generously offered herself you know, and her advice to me, which I, which I took. Um, then, because I'm a fangirl, <laughs> I confess, there were the ones like this. So this is, if you recognize these folks, this is when we did a, a sort of presentation of Hidden Figures, the movie. Um, so, you know, Taraji Henson, Octavia Spencer, that's Janelle Monet in the corner, so that was kind of fun. Uh, this is when we traveled to Morocco for Let Girls Learn with Meryl Streep and Frida Pinto. Um, that's a little fun. <laughs> but then there were women like this. So it wasn't all of just famous people that we got to meet. And in fact, some of, I think, the most fun moments were when average people came to the White House. Mrs. Obama and the president were really clear that we wanted to make the White House a place where people who wouldn't ordinarily find themselves in the White House could come and would feel welcome. This is 104-year-old Virginia McLaren. She's a resident of D.C. She actually lives about a mile and a half from the White House, but at 104 years old, she was still a foster grandmother, but had never been to the White House. It's a mile and a half from her house, but she lives in Anacostia, which is the African-American neighborhood in D.C., never been there. My staff found out about her story. We invited her to the White House. She comes in. What's happening in this picture is she walks into, this is the blue room, to take her picture, and she gets all excited. She says, the first African-American first lady. Mrs. Obama's looking at her and saying, and what about this guy? <laughs> to which she then said, of course, oh, yeah, you too. <laughs> 
And of course, being the boss wouldn't be the same without talking about my boss, my forever boss, as I call her, Mrs. Obama, whose leadership really on forcing us to think big about issues that we could make a difference on and that would promote the president's agenda and that were authentic to her, led us to do the four initiatives that I'm so proud of that we did out of her office. The first being Let's Move to Combat Childhood Obesity. So we were getting kids to move on the White House lawn here and also built a garden in the White House. And some of you may have read about this was one of our final pictures in the garden because we memorialized it with this, these, these great wooden tables. That was our secret plan to make sure they couldn't rip it out <laughs> when we left. Um, to our joining forces for veterans and military families, this is the USS Illinois, our most uh, recent nuclear submarine that Mrs. Obama is the, is the sponsor of. Um, which we also celebrated every Christmas because the most special place in the White House at Christmas was our Gold Star tree. And it is a tree, which you see pictured here, that Gold Star families who have lost a loved one in the service, um, military service to our country could write their names and put it on our Christmas tree. To Reach Higher, which was our third initiative where we, are, we were encouraging disadvantaged kids um, and first-generation college kids to go, kids in high school to go to college, um, which we all sort of celebrated with people putting on their college t-shirts. It was also Mrs. Obama's last event. So if you ever see pictures of her getting teary at an event, her very last event in the White House was this Reach Higher event for Counselor of the Year. To the final initiative, which was our one international initiative that I feel so passionately about, which is Let Girls Learn. And that was our initiative to try to address the issue of the 98 million girls around the world, adolescent girls, who are not in school today. And they are not allowed to finish high school and they're, because they're subject to all the gender discrimination that women are. You know, they are viewed as more valuable to families to being married, you know, um, or as labor, and they're not invested in, in their education. We've continued that work with the Global Girls Alliance. You can go to the Obama Foundation website and find out about how Mrs. Obama and we are continuing that work to support adolescent girls' education. Um, and then, as um, Edwina mentioned, one of my, you know, treasured experiences at the White House, and it, this actually, this particular picture was taken exactly 10 years ago yesterday. We celebrated the 10-year anniversary yesterday of the signing of the executive order that created the White House Council on Women and Girls, you know, which was really a council of every part of the federal government, all the cabinet agencies, all of the White House offices, and uh, we did things like make sure that women could ascend to every level of the military. So the Department of Defense took on that responsibility instead of pointing down the cabinet table at a different women's policy office. Um, we even highlighted Girl Scouts. This is one of my favorite events that we did, which was a Girl Scout sleepover. You will notice that this is a campfire sing-along with the President and the First Lady, except the Secret Service wouldn't let us have a campfire <laughs> on the South Lawn. So Girl Scout ingenuity took over, and it's lamps sort of sitting right there as the campfire that you can see in the center there. Um, and we culminated it all with a celebration of the work that we had done in June of 2016 with a 5,000-person summit called United State of Women that really brought all the threads of issues that women care about. And it was much like All About Women. I feel very in a familiar space here where we're talking about health and education and violence against women and economic opportunity. Um, because even though those groups often operate in silos, I often say women don't live their lives in silos. And we needed to have something that brought them all together. I'm very proud to say we continue the United State of Women post-White House. It exists as an NGO. You can go to unitedstateofwomen.org to find out. We did another summit last year in Los Angeles with Mrs. Obama, you know, of, of 6,000 folks, um, to really continue that work across the country. 
Um, but not every workplace and not every being the boss is always easy. So I thought I'd be a little self-revealing and reflective and humble about the challenges because even in the Obama White House, even as woke as we like to think that we are, this is the front page of the New York Times in January of 2013 after our re-election. And you will see the headline is, this is the remade inner circle. So it's a picture of the president's senior advisors at the time, and it was all men, or so it seemed. The communication staff of the White House pushed back on this photo and said, oh, no, 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 Valerie Jarrett's leg is there. <laughs> and you can see it behind Dan Pfeiffer, who's in the blue shirt, you know, eating the apple. There's like a little, little you know, black strip there. That's Valerie. <laughs> and I say this because diversity is something you got to think about all the time. It doesn't just come when you're not, you know, when it, it, by itself. You have to be intentional. Even in, you know, an administration as committed as we were to these issues, this came up. But I will tell you, we were always intentional about it. We doubled down on our efforts, and that led to a picture like this. So these three women, by the time we got to the end of our administration, this is the top of the national security structure in the United States of America. That's Susan Rice, our national security advisor, Irel Haynes, who was the counsel to the National Security Council, um, and Lisa Monaco, who was in charge of counterterrorism, badass woman beyond belief. And that's what happens when you're intentional. I mean, national security is not the place that women are usually in, and we had all three women at the top being that. We had a summit on working families. I'm going to speed up here really quickly because we're going to talk about some of these issues um, to really address the issues of workplace. We did this very early on in 2015 to try to address it. And what I learned from this was companies actually want to do better, they, they, but they didn't know how. And a lot of times it was their lawyers telling them, oh, don't do that equal pay study because we don't want to find out we have an equal pay problem, right? So I, can't, I thought that when I left the White House, what I want to do actually is help companies. That I did believe at the time that there was a desire by companies to address these issues, but to address them holistically. So my firm, Buckley LLP, we started a new practice called Workplace Cultural Compliance, where we address workplace issues not as employment law issues, because they're not just employment law issues. This is about workplace culture. This is about taking the issues of sexual harassment and diversity and inclusion and pay equity and promotion and retention and hiring and really creating the culture, not just for women, but for men, for people of color, for disabled workers, for LGBTQ workers, you know, to have a place that's respectful and safe for everyone and build those cultures. And that is, that's the work I continue to do as my day job as my not-so-day job, <laughs> and my other additional job is um, I have been working with um, these women, these incredible women from Hollywood, when we launched you know, Time's Up, you know, just about a little over a year ago, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein you know, allegations, where the women of Hollywood came together. And I have to give them a lot of credit. They, first of all, used their voices at great risk to their careers to speak out. Um, and then they wanted to make sure that they were going to do something and build something that would make a difference, not just for themselves, recognizing that they were women of privilege and had platforms, but to do something that would benefit low-income women and women who really needed it, the farm workers, the waitresses, the factory workers who are suffering from sexual harassment and often cannot get a lawyer to represent them because guess what? Their wages are so low. So it's a case that's not really worth it for employment lawyers to take on. And so we created the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, um, which has now raised about over $22 million. Um, it's housed at the National Women's Law Center, which is a 45-year-old women's rights organization in D.C. Uh, we've had over 4,800 cases 
cases come to us in the last year for assistance. I'm happy to say we have 800 lawyers who are volunteering their services at no or low cost. Um, but I'm also really proud to say that it's working because it's reaching two thirds of those um, people coming forward were low income women, one third you know, are people of color. But we know that sexual harassment's prevalent, you know, and just to cite some statistics, I know you've had a recent study here in Australia. Um, we did a study in 2015 from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that found that three out of four claims of sexual harassment never are brought forward. People don't report. And that's probably just the tip of the iceberg now. Um, and part of the reason I believe they don't report is the other statistic from that study, which showed that three out of four people who did report reported being retaliated against for coming forward. And yet, as it says in the first bullet, in the United States, it's been 30 years since sexual harassment was outlawed. Um, and yet here we are, and we can talk some more. We talked a little bit in, the, in our Me Too panel about some of the problems with our legal structures and why we are where we are, and we can continue that conversation too to this afternoon. One other piece of work, so a little ray of sunshine on the, on the horizon, though, is an additional uh, piece of what I'm doing in the Not My Day Job is I chair the Task Force on Diversity and Inclusion for the Grammys, for the Recording Academy. Some of you may remember there was sort of the Grammy So Male moment that happened in last year's Grammys. Um, they, in response to that, put together a task force that I chair to try to address issues of diversity and inclusion, like the statistics that you see from the USC Annenberg Inclusion Study on how few women there really are in the music industry only 9.3% of Grammy nominees over the year. I will say our task force has made some progress. We got them to change the composition of the committees that actually make the nominations. Last year, it was 23% female. In a single year, this is back to the point about being intentional about diversity, it went from 23% to 50%. And this year, the number went up. Not a lot, but it went up a little, 10.4%. The other statistic from that study was that of Producers and engineers in the recording industry, only 3% of engineers are women, only 2% of producers are women. 2% and 3%, it's 2019. So what we did in the last Grammys two weeks ago was to do a call to action among agents and recording artists and labels and studios to the next time they're gonna hire a producer and engineer, um, make whatever decision they want in the end for their creative, but, but before they do it, consider at least two women. Put two women at least in the mix before they make the decision. Um, I'm really proud to say that in two weeks, we got 500 artists and labels and people from across the industry to sign up. So it's people like Jennifer Lopez, you see tweeting about it, Tony Bennett, Linda Perry, who's an amazing... Amazing producer, Justin Bieber, Maroon 5, Keith Urban, Carrie Underwood, Katy Perry. Um, and it really showed me that we just need to ask people. We need to ask men and women to do something. People want to help. They want to change the face of our industries and our workplaces. We just need to tell them and ask them to do something. And so finally, I will just close on this. So this is a quick story. This is a picture that, and a story that appeared in the Washington Post a couple of months after we launched the, um, the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. She's one of our first clients, Malin DeVoe. Malin DeVoe was sitting at home watching the Golden Globes, says she felt Oprah's speech that night really reach out to her because she was a hotel clerk, a cook rather, um, who had been harassed by one of the hotel engineers. 
when she went to report the harassment to her manager, who said, oh, I'll take care of it. The manager calls the hotel engineer and actually tells him that he's not going to fire that guy and Malin's making trouble. The engineer spreads that around to the entire hotel. So now Malin's getting shunned by her workers because the story is from the engineer that you know, she is like, you know, I, I didn't come on to her. She's making this up and now she's trying to get me fired. She then was fired and then she's sitting at home watching the Globes hearing about Oprah, calls the Times Up, Times Up Legal Defense son. We were able to get her a lawyer. She's working her way through the legal process right now with a lawsuit. But what I love about it is the title there. Because what she said was because of the work we did, because of getting her a lawyer, she said, I feel brave now. I feel brave now. And that's what we want. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to try to achieve. You know, for low-income women, as you said, Kate, who are really suffering here, um, and uh, the work continues. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. And wow, there is so much to talk about. <laughs> And we've got, we've, got, we've got a bit of time, but not a huge amount, so I'm just going to dive right in. Um, you know, one of the things that's sort of, you know, key to your story, I think, is, is your origins, right? You're a first-generation American, um, so you're a Chinese-American who's also a woman in a pretty, like, you know, male-dominated industry, uh, first law and then politics. I mean, neither of them are known for their, like... Not a lot of Asian women. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> How do you think that that perspective, that, 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 that those sort of identities and that perspective, what did that do to the way that you what, did you, what did that give you to bring to work? Well, I think, you know, one, one of the things that I took with me because was when I grew up, you know, as I mentioned, you know, only Chinese kid in my school, me and my sister, um, uh, only one for miles, lots of stairs. And it was more as a result, we were more curiosity than a threat, so it wasn't, you know, vicious discrimination, but real curiosity. So I grew up being an only, you mm -hmm. know, that sense of the only in the room. And it's only recently that I've reflected that actually it was that experience as a child where I got comfortable with the idea of being an only and how to manage that, that I think allowed me not to sort of obsess about it when I was the only woman of color, you know, in a room full of white men doing big cases, you know, and not letting it get inside my head that this is what's happening, right? How about the positive stuff that that might have brought? Did, that, did, 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 did your onlyness give you a perspective that was kind of outside and maybe sort of more nuanced or...? Well, it's certainly... I mean, I do think, you know, that gave me, you know, a perspective on how to sort of assess, assess a room, how to look at a set of problems. The other thing it let me do, so I'll tell you, the, the other thing it let me do is I'd go into a deposition, you know, with a man trying to ask a question, and I was really good at playing oh, could you just explain that to me? The dumb girl, right? <laughs> it works. Because they all assume that. And I was like, all right, if you're going to assume that that's what I am, I am using this against you. And we'll be like, well, explain that again. And you would be amazed at the things that I got. I mean, I got damaging testimony from people on the other <laughs> side all the time. But just like, but, you know, explain it again. I really didn't sort of get that. <laughs> just a hint. <laughs> that's lethal. Um, so one of the things that was astonishing in that presentation that you just gave were those two photographs of the two sort of Obama cabinets or groups around him, the sort of all-male <laughs> yes. group first and, right. then, and then the women. And, and you did make the point when you were talking that you were very intentional about 
making that change. Can you describe that process a little more? Because at the moment, you know, in our concert hall, we have a panel going on where we have Julie Bishop and Sarah Hanson-Young and Linda Burney and Julia Banks, all very senior Australian politicians who are massively in, their minority, in the minority in the Australian Parliament. And it's the same with advisors. Um, there's a debate going on about quotas here, whether quotas actually work. When you say being intentional, did that have? Did, did you bring quotas into that, or was that? All right. So we're Americans, so we don't do quotas. <laughs> there's actually a whole because well, it impinges a, on your freedom. Well, or? yeah. Uh. Well, there's a whole legal construct around it, and then it's a whole political thing around quotas, right? We have long, long, you know, for the last sort of 40, 50 years, decade, you know, d d debates about quotas. Um, so we actually don't do quotas. When I say, though, intentional, it's sort of like the Recording Academy, you know, initiative, is that you have to go look for women. You know, don't just pick the person who is the guy that you know that, you know, was just there. Go keep looking for a diverse set of people to select from before you make the decision. Now, you may decide he's still the best person at the end of it, but take a look at everybody and keep looking. And when you are intentional about looking, then you can convert your national security agency. We also had a moment, which I couldn't find a picture of them. We had a moment in our White House Counsel's Office where all four women at the top of the White House Counsel's Office, all four people at the top were all women. You know, and that, you know, that was a shift again from that moment where now, I'll be honest, to give ourselves some, you know, that picture from the New York Times came out of our election year where we were just thinking about getting reelected, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, but that is also a sign. I show that be because, you know, to, like I said, to have some humility about ourselves in the Obama administration, but to say that even in our administration, as committed as we were, you know, with a leader at the top who was as committed as he was to gender equity, if you're not constantly paying attention, right? it gets really easy just to pick the people that are familiar or the people who are standing around next to you or the people who look like you. Um, it happens to all of us. And, you know, to really achieve that diversity and inclusion that we're looking for requires always paying attention and always having it at its front of mind. Does that suggest also on the flip side that the women that might be incredibly capable of doing these jobs aren't necessarily putting themselves forward because oh, yeah. it doesn't occur to them that maybe they have what it takes? It is. Well, you know, and you know the research, right? So women don't apply for anything until they are like 150% of the requirements and men apply when they have 50% of the requirements, right? You know, and it's true, right? And, and so it is, it does require looking. And then it's also the case, here's the producer and engineer problem. There are hundreds of qualified women producers and engineers out there, but they just don't get taken seriously. And they don't just get the look. And when you're making an investment, like making a record, it's costly. You know, and the producer and the engineer is the linchpin to the creation of the music, right? It's like what a director is to a movie. And so you're putting a lot on that person. And that's the risk. For example, you go with the safe choice, which is the guy who's done the last 10 records, as opposed to reaching out to this incredibly talented woman. But that's what we're trying to urge people to do, is give those women a look, give them the opportunity, and they're going to shine. And then you'll have things like, you know, when you have people of color doing things, you have things like Black Panther. You have things like Coco from Pixar. You, you know, you have, you know, these incredible things that come you have like Shondaland and Shonda Rhimes' shows. That's what happens when you have diverse creativity coming to the forefront. That's right. There's an economic argument for it as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting um, the way that that kind of played out through the Obama White House because the fact that they were in the White House in and of itself was kind of a triumph of diversity, I guess. Right. Um, you 
knew them way back from, you know, you were involved. You were saying to me the other day, you don't actually remember how you met. <laughs> we like, don't. Which, which is extraordinary, although I have right. friendships like that as well, and I'm sure we all do. But um, when you sort of, when he first thought about running for Senate and then, and then for President, I mean, there's a lot been said about the role of, the role of race in that, but in terms of once the White House once they had the White House. How did those kind of dynamics of inclusion play out on not just a hiring um, sense, but in, but in terms of policy as well? So one of the things the president felt quite strongly about was he was president of the entire country. He was president of even people who didn't vote for him. Um, and so he governed from a space, you know, sometimes to the frustration of some of our allies, right, who expected him to come in and, you know, sort of run just the liberal agenda, run just the civil rights agenda. And um, remember, it's hard to remember now, though, but 10 years ago, we were in economic freefall. So, you know, job one was, we're headed into a Great Depression if we don't right this ship. Um, and, you know, he had that very much in mind and governed from a place of, I'm, you know, I'm, I have to bring this country together and govern for everyone. Now, as we got deeper into the administration and some of those basic things that had to be done, like the Affordable Care Act, you know, and the Economic Recovery Act and the Dodd-Frank Act on banks and institutions got done, you know, we were able to then focus our attention on LGBT rights, you know, and get rid of, you know, the ban on, you know, gays in the military, you know, get, you know, marriage equality done. Um, we were able to sort of start tackling criminal justice and working on, you know, all of those issues that were more specific to disadvantaged communities and to African-American communities in particular. Um, but he did take very seriously that he was not just the president for liberal America or black America or LGBT America. He was president for the entire country. And I mean, it's quite a shopping list, isn't it? Of things to, <laughs> things to go through. Um, and, and Mrs. Obama, who you worked with and became really good friends with, um, you call her you called her your forever boss. <laughs> right, right. Um, which, which, which could be stalky. <laughs> Um, what did she teach you about leadership? Oh, you know, it, what she taught me was, um, you know, to be uh, sort of exacting in a sense. And I think is why we got along well, because I, I'm also, from my training as a lawyer, exacting. But she was always really strategic. I mean, one of the things she said was, look... We're, the luxury you have in what we call the East Wing, right? So that's where the first ladies... Everybody knows the West Wing because it's a TV show. <laughs> but the East Wing, there's no TV show. And it we are... It is true that everything we know about America <laughs> right. will learn from the culture. So the East Wing is where the first ladies' office is housed. And um, so that's what we called it. So the luxury we had in the East Wing is um, we could pick our agenda, right? You know, so the interesting thing about the First Lady of the United States is there's no statute, there's no job description, there's actually no salary for her either, right? But there's this huge platform in this, in this role. And so you can select from anything to do, but she was really clear that anything I spend my time on is at the expense of something else. So make that time count, that really every, being strategic about every choice we made and being very deliberate and disciplined about it is what I learned from her. She's an incredibly disciplined decision maker, um, looks at all the alternatives first and then figures out what's the best choice. What do you think she might have learned from you? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I don't know. I don't know. This is interesting. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it, well, I, I am like 
sort of a relentless workaholic, actually. So that's probably part of what she learned from me. Do you think that there is a unique female style of leadership? Do you think that female... I mean, female leaders have to do things a bit differently, right? Do you think do. that that, that colours a way that women lead... That is in either good or I bad do. ways. I mean, it's you know, it's hard to do sort of overgeneralize, obviously, because people are different. But, but I do think because you know, you know, Carol Gillian did the whole research, you know, 40 years ago around women's voices and women's leadership, and that we have to be more nurturing and more inclusive and more collaborative. In and that's that's sort of how we're you know our, our nature is, and it, it also has to do with sort of be, being you know mothers and being the people who hold families together. Um, and there is some of that. I mean, that is certainly how I value, you know, my leadership. I mean, one of the things you do in the White House, you find out, you know, we had really small staff, right? So every one of those initiatives that I pointed out to you never, never had more than two or three people working on them, right? But we're doing these huge, you know, national and international impact work because we worked in partnership. You know, you have to work in partnership with people and, you know, and extend that reach out. Um, and that sort of collaborative leadership, I view, is really critical mm. to getting work done. And that probably is something that I think comes easier to women than it does to men. I guess we're socialised to think about a lot of other people. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and to put ego aside. Right. So being collaborative requires putting your ego aside, right? Mm -hmm. And listening, you know, and not always just dictating how things, you know, are going to go. You're going to bring people in and a true partnership is you're going to listen to what they want to do too and figure out how those two things merge together, not just say, oh, I'm just bringing you in to do what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you said something before that, um, that studies have shown, as they do, that uh, women won't apply for a job and, unless they're 150% qualified right. while men will have a crack if they're 50% qualified. And that brings to mind your most recent election in the United States. Oh. <laughs> oh, do we really have to do... Well, which one? The 18 or the 16? Because 18... Yeah, right, I'll talk okay. about 18 all day long. Sure. <laughs> sure, no, I was talking about the, you know, the big one. Right. Um, and I wonder, you know, as somebody who was part of a White House team with such a reform agenda that you pursued, you know, so um, kind of strongly through that period, what do you think about how gender politics are playing out in the White House now? So, you know, I'm not going to get into what is actually going on in the current White House. I actually don't know, other than, you know, what we're all sort of reporting on and reading. And I, what I do know about just the jobs is they're really hard. And what you see publicly reported is one-tenth, right, of what's really going on. But I will say that, you know, not just the rhetoric that has come from the current president and, you know, and actually the entire Republican Party, but also the policies, you know, so they have not re-endorsed the Violence Against Women Act. They are rolling back the protections for um, students on campus that we put in place to protect, you know, students from the epidemic of sexual assault that we have on our college campuses. You know, they just defunded Planned Parenthood, which is unbelievable, you know. So, you know, Planned Parenthood, we do not have public funding of abortions, and we haven't, but P Planned Parenthood does cancer screenings for poor women and they do family planning for poor women and they do blood pressure you know treatment for poor women they just defunded them you know um, from the federal budget so you know this what's more critical beyond the rhetoric is this really anti-woman set of policies that are being run that are really detrimental and we see it playing out in the supreme court as well it's certainly playing out in the supreme court mm. um 
I wonder, um, you know, with that kind of in mind, there's also the sort of, you know, the resurgence of all of these often young women, often of colour, who are now being elected to... Mm -hmm. um, to to govern, right. and and you know when you look at the way that the primaries are shaping up, too, there are female candidates popping up all over the place. How do you think one relates to the other? Do you think that? Oh, I absolutely think they relate. I mean, I think now people realize, which we've been trying to tell them for a long time, that elections matter, right? So all those elections matter. I mean, there were a lot of people who didn't vote in 2016 in the general election. Remember, Hillary loses that election by a total of 80,000 votes across three states. It's like something like 10,000, I used to know these off the top and I've forgotten them a little bit, but it's like 10,000 vote difference in Wisconsin, like 15,000 vote difference in Pennsylvania. I mean, these are like, that's the, that was it. 80,000 votes across the entire country, three key states, she's president of the United States. That's just people who didn't vote. Remember, we don't have compulsory voting, I'm sorry to say. So we've got to get people to turn out and vote and they don't. And they, you know, young people didn't. Um, African-American women did, women of color did, but white women didn't, or a lot of them voted for Donald mm -hmm. Trump, you know, against their interests. And so I think, you know, if anything has at least become clearer is, and I think you saw it play out in the midterms, is the starkness of the difference that elections matter. You know, the Republican and the Democratic parties used to maybe sort of be in a fuzzy middle. That's not the case anymore. It is really clear, you know, who stands for equality, who stands for justice, who stands for things like, you know, a fair wage for folks, you know, and who stands for tax, tax cuts for the rich, right? And, you know, defunding things like Planned Parenthood, you know, you know playing out a really radical anti-abortion agenda. So we are going to open up for questions. Um, if you have a question, we actually need to, um, you need to put your hand up and wait for a microphone to arrive because um, we're recording this. And so even though it's a smallish room and if you shout it out, we could hear you, the people who are listening um, won't be able to. So um, I'm just gonna finish up very soon, but if you wanna put your hand up, if you do have a question, you can have the mic waiting when we're ready to, um, to go. So I guess, um, you know, when we're thinking about this and, and, and thinking about this in the context of the work that you're doing with your law firm now and with, with Time's Up, what do you think are still the greatest barriers to women being the boss? <laughs> like in like 30 long, words or less. How much time do we have, Edwina? <laughs> All right, you know, how much longer have we got to go? Uh, so no, seriously, it's a yeah. lot. I mean, these are complex issues. Um, you know, I said it earlier in the, in the concert hall, you know, Gender inequality has been around forever, right? Transcends time, race, ethnicity, religion, geography. I mean, it's everywhere. It's been everywhere. It's, you know, from the dawn of time, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the Bible. I mean, it just, it's, it's, so we're not going to get through this in a very short period of time. Um, it's going to take a long time. And what, what, what's happening right now in the workplace is a real change in our norms, right? Our cultural norms of how women and men and people of color and disabled and LGBTQ workers have interacted in the workplace, you know, for a very long time. And we're in a generational and, and, a, and a cultural shift. It's uncomfortable for people, um, but it's important. And, you know, it, and I do feel that because it's so stark, 
um, it actually has some salience that it's actually happening. It's like people are feeling it. CEOs are paying attention. And, you know, you young people in the room have a lot to do with it too because you all vote with your feet when you don't like a workplace and you write about it on Facebook so everybody knows. And that actually CEOs are listening. They're in a war for your talent and they're having to respond and that's really helping push the change. I think, too, it's easy to look at sort of, you know, deeply entrenched patriarchal structures that we all work and live in and think these can never change. But then I also think about what my grandmother would have thought to hear that marriage equality right. laws had been passed. I mean, that would have been so outside of her realm of conception of something that was possible. And yet here we are. So It I was think unheard that... of 10 years ago. Right. We didn't think we could get it last 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it had happened. Sometimes it happens in a burst, you know, although that burst, remember, the work up to marriage equality took many years, mm -hmm. you know, from LGBTQ activists working hard on that. Um, uh, but, and we're, we're in that similar moment, I think. And I, I do think what I'm encouraged by in this last year plus, you know, since the Harvey Weinstein um, reporting came out is there is this sustained momentum that sort of undeniable, mm. you know, and economic decision, you know, investors are looking at it, CEOs are really paying attention, women's voices are being heard and listened to in ways and that believed. they believed. And believed. I mean, that listened and believed is huge. Mm. Um, and even though there's a little bit of two steps forward, one step back, you know, because you only have to look at the Kavanaugh hearings to see that it's not universal that this is happening, um, but it's still happening in so many places where it never would have before. So, do we have questions? And if I could ask you to keep the questions as brief as you can, because we've got not much time and a lot to get through, and I think we all know the difference between a manifesto and a question. So, <laughs> uh, so um, I think there was somebody with a microphone up the back. Hello, thank you for that. Uh, my name is Genevieve, Genevieve Craig. I am a storyteller in film. And my question is around leadership and women. And we've touched a little bit about uh, the qualities. But what are some of the things that we can do in our own workplace to encourage more women in, in that leadership to support each other? Because we know having one person at the top or a few actually creates a more segregated, um, isolating experience. Whereas when you have a more parityed uh, management, it is more encouraging and creates more creative ideas. Well, critical mass, right? Yeah. So critical mass matters, meaning, you know, and I think the research is three is, is the number where things change really starts to happen, right? Three, three women, three people of color, you know, at, at least that in, that in that setting at the top of the organization, you start to have enough where, you know, movement can happen and people aren't struggling alone. So, you know, I think we have to, you know, we have to really look at this is, you know, where I say culture, it's all of a piece. It's not just sexual harassment in one place and diversity inclusion in another and pay increase in someplace else. You have to look at all of it together and really pay attention to how are promotions being done, you know, how are, you know, um, you know, evaluations being done, how are pay increases being done, how is recruitment being done, you know, all of these things, you know, are little, you know, feed into each other and we tend to have in the past really treated them in just silos, right? So the human resources department is doing one thing and a head of diversity is doing another thing. Um, you've got affinity groups that are doing a third thing um, and not connected and not really changing both culture and what, you know, the business imperatives are of the company. I mean, that's my thing. My big point is this is as important to companies now as your safety and health 
regulations are, as your securities fraud regulations are, as your investment in the new technology that you're trying to buy as a company. Your investment in your talent, we're in a knowledge economy, your investment in your talent is as important as any one of those things, and you have to take it seriously, and it's all of those things. You cannot recruit and retain the best talent if you don't have a culture that is holistically paying attention and letting everyone you know, be, be their whole selves and reach their full potential. Uh, question in the front. Hi, thank you so much for your time and your conversation. Um, I'm Laura Diaz, a journalism student in New York, but I was born and raised in Mexico until I moved to New York for college, for university. And I, with my work experience and my student experience, wanted to ask you, how can we go about inclusive diversity without tokenizing? And if we're tokenized, how can we navigate that in the workspace, in the classroom, without creating tension between employer and employee or professor and student? No, that's an important question. It's, I mean, it, it, it is really important um, because that happens. And it's sort of, certainly I've lived that all, all the time, right? Um, which is, okay, we need somebody who's diverse. Okay, Tina, you're coming with us, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, um, and, I, you know, I think, so I, I don't have a global answer. I can tell you how I navigated it. And I navigated it by not letting that necessarily get inside my head that I was the token. It's like, okay, if you're going to bring me, then I'm going to make the most of this, right? I mean, if they're going to let you in the room, and if they own, and even if the only reason they let you in the room is they were going to go pitch to a woman, you know, general counsel, and they needed a woman going along, <laughs> is that, okay, I'm going to then do that. And then I am going to tell you that you only got this business because of me, and so I want the credit for it. I mean, seriously, I mean, if they're going to, don't, I, I think we should not get too much inside our heads about why we got into the room. And let that make us, you know, be really pissed off about that because it's not right. On the other hand, just make the most of being in the room at that point. It's a little bit like the guy, you know, who wants to treat me as stupid, so I'm going to let you, like, hang yourself as I, as I play, play dumb. But it's the same sort of thing. If you're going to have me be a token, well, then hell, I'm running with this, right? No, seriously, and I think that's how we can get past that, you know, and actually seize, use it as, a, as an opportunity and as a moment to seize it, right? And then, what the, but then what we need to do is continue to open the doors to everybody else. You know, there very much we had a saying in the White House, and Mrs. Obama and the president were very, you know, you've got to, you know, not close the door opportunity, but reach a hand through the door of opportunity as you step through it and lift, you know, someone else through it. And it sometimes feels like a burden. It's like, why should it just be us? doing that and our responsibility. On the other hand, if we're in the room, then we should use our voice and we should use our diverse voice um, to do that. Um, and sometimes it does feel like maybe too much of a burden. On the other hand, for me, it's been some of the most rewarding work I've done. Uh, on the aisle here. Hi. Um, my question is, I'm a young mother so I, my baby's nine months old and I'm now uh, looking at what it's going to take for me to go back to work um, and I'm really nervous about it. So my question is, um, what is your advice to young mothers yes. trying to make it work? Because right now there just seems like there's so many barriers and I'm a really ambitious person. Yeah. But things like the, the cost of childcare, um, the fact that, you know, there isn't childcare facilities within the workplace. 
Um, these are just two of the many other yeah. barriers that exist. Uh, so what's your advice to me? Yeah. So, child, you know, affordable childcare is a huge problem. And I will say, you know, with those wonderful pictures of my children, I was a partner at a big law firm. So I recognized I actually had the resources, right? I had the resources to hire full-time care for my children that I trusted that became members of our families who I knew, you know, my kids were well cared for. And not everyone has that ability or luxury, and it is a huge issue and a huge problem. So I can't solve the childcare problem for you. But I will say, here's my piece of advice to, to, young, to young parents is... To, to really focus on the things that are important, right? That your kids, you know, are, are safe and that you know, they, they know that you love them and not worry about some of the other stuff. So here are my like stories about not worrying about the other stuff. Um, there was a point in time in my, in my life is, um, where we had a leak in our second floor bathroom. I tell this story a lot because it's just an example of how you gotta sort through the things that are important or not important. We have a leak in our second floor bathroom, the plumber comes, tears out the ceiling, fixes the leak, but he, of course, he doesn't put the ceiling back because he's a plumber, right? He's not the drywaller. But you can't get a drywaller in Chicago to come fix one hole in a ceiling, right? They don't come out for a job like that. Um, the hole in the ceiling stayed in my bathroom for a decade <laughs> because it was the second floor bathroom, right? Like nobody saw the second floor bathroom except our family. And it was like, I don't have time to fix the second floor bathroom, and it's not really important in our lives to fix the second floor bathroom. Um, you know, there are other things that are more important. The other example is there was a time in both kids' lives where they were perfectly happy going to school in the clothes that they slept in. They were toddlers. They, like, slept in their, you know... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, you know, shirt anyway, and that's all Patrick wanted to wear, so... Why not go to school in that, too? Nobody's going to judge me on it. I'm not going to judge myself. And if they did judge me on it, I don't really care. My kid is happy in what he's wearing, and he's warm, and he's, you know. And so it, there's, like, little things like that, like sorting out the other noise about what is supposed to be what you're doing as a mom um, to the things that are really important for you and your family about being a mom and being able then to fit all the other things in. And then really my, my last message is, is what those slides were intended to show. They're fine. They will do fine. <laughs> they really will. I mean, we had like our ups and downs. It's not that I say it was easy and it's easy to say now that they're 30 and 22. Um, but, you know, but we did, we got through it and we are, we have a great relationship. My daughter did just try to FaceTime me uh, an hour ago, you know, so it's, it's, you know, we, it, it'll happen. It feels really hard there right now. Nine months is like, oh my God, <laughs> I feel it. I feel, I feel that. And I think the other thing, sorry, just very yeah. quickly, I think the other thing that you have to remember or keep in mind is what you want to model to your daughter and right. to your son. You know, do you want to model somebody that kind of puts their needs... Every, like, I mean, you, obviously right. their needs come first, but right. at the same time, you want to model somebody that has an independent life yeah. and that has a means of supporting yourself and has, you know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, we have time for two more questions. Um, uh, there's one on the aisle here. Hi. Uh, first question, will you adopt me? <laughs> Second question, I often see women that are in positions of power in terms of being the boss uh, kind of expected to act like men and when they do that they're seen as being a bitch rather than men kind of acting like women and being a little bit softer because I think we're all societally we're brought up to be a little bit more compassionate. I'm just wondering if you encounter, I mean, the White House is kind of, you know, it's, it's 
the be all and end all really. So I was wondering if you had encountered that or seen that happen and kind of how that's dealt with in a place that's so powerful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, actually, I've seen it in the law firm context, you know, saw it in, um, you know, some in the White House. Um, um, although, interestingly, as I'm scrolling through my, my, my brain, you know, a, a lot of the women in the White House, because you're already at such a high level, had actually sorted through that. These were all women who were pretty well-rounded. Um, not, not all, but most were moms and some, you know, had gotten to a level where they didn't actually have to do that prove themselves to everybody else thing anymore. Um, uh, that sort of was a marker of, you know, Susan Rice is a good example. And um, so now we were exacting. And so the other thing that happens when women get labeled as a bitch is not necessarily that they're really being nasty. It's that we're being exacting. You know, we are actually acting, and I'm, I'm accused of that. You know, I have a very, very high standards, um, and I push people to get to that, which can sometimes get looked at as, you know, I'm being too hard on people. It's like, okay, no, no, we're actually at the White House. <laughs> so, yeah, we can, this, this all better work. Um, and, and, but, you know, but there are also ways to do that, which is that we have to, as leaders, not just yell at people to get something done. You have to bring them along. We had a lot of young people working for us. You know, you know, I had 25-year-olds working for me, running national programs. And, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to empower them, but you also have to bring them along. And then you also have to be patient when they don't do it right the first time. And we have to do the thing that we are always, you know, complaining about, which is women don't get multiple strikes, right? And men get lots of strikes. Well, we have to be willing when we're the boss to give everyone multiple strikes, because that's what it takes to bring a really quality team along. Is But it's hard when you're the boss, and it's hard what I am sympathetic to, to women who are the only women at the top of the organization, is you are held to a different standard. You're held to a much higher standard. And if you're giving people beneath you multiple strikes, the pressure on you is really hard. And I think the rest of us have to recognize that and, ha and, and do what we can to support you know, women who are alone at the top of organizations, because it's really hard. It's really hard and it's very lonely. I think that's absolutely key. In fact, we're actually out of time. I'm sorry, we won't be able to take any more questions. But I think that that's probably one of the most important things we can all do is support each other right. and be there for each other, back each other up in meetings, um, you right. know, kind of all of those things. I think that if we can all do that, then we can make safer, better, more inclusive Which workplaces. Which is why I'm so glad when you do this. <laughs> this, the, the, no, this, this, this wonderful day is sort of about that, right? Is about looking at all these issues that you've got listed there, having us all come across issues to support each other, voices from around the globe. So I'm very grateful to you for bringing me here and for having this well, today. Well, thank you so much for coming along. If we could please thank right. <laughs> Tina Chan.